Welcome to this podcast from Central, Jesus at the Heart. More information is available from www.jesusattheheart.org. Hey everyone, how are you doing? Good, yeah? Smiles, anyone been at any fringe events? Yeah, how many? Put up your hand. Ooh, this side, this is like the funny side. This side, I don't know. It's more, more contemplative. It's a Sunday true, so shouldn't be going to things like that. Um, so actually, I've got another question I'd like to ask. I want to um, ask about mountains, and more specifically, Munros. There's everyone who here knows what a Munro is? Okay, got a few here who doesn't know what a Munro is? Yeah, a few. Okay, it's the people that put your hands up to say you did know, could someone want to shout out uh, what a Munro is? It's a hill. That's kind of in the right direction, but I'm like a bit more specific. Anyone else? Thank you, Michael. Very good. 3,000 feet, exactly. Um, so a hill over 3,000 feet, and in, in Scotland as well, I think. Um, one more question. I'd like this to be a participative event. So put your hand up if you've climbed a Munro. Okay. How about two? Three? Four? Five? Six? Seven? Eight? Nine? Ten? Twenty? Fifteen? Oh, 20. We've got a 20. 25? 40? 30? 35? 33? How many did you, how many you climbed? 31. I think let's give it a good big hand. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Actually, can we take that back? Can we do an anti-clap? We've got something else at the back. About a hundred. All right. Even better. You know, when you climb that many Munro's, you should really be taking a list. You know, take, remember how many you do. That's a good fact to have. Um, this morning, I actually asked the same question, and someone said 324. There actually aren't 324 Munro's. I think there's only like 297 or something. But he said he climbed 200. I found out later, after he'd climbed 260 and 40, then we'd done twice. So anyway, that was not helpful, um, but he's still done a lot. I've done four, which is not very good, really, um, particularly because I, I lived at Loch Tay. I lived at the foot of, one, of the seventh highest Munro in Scotland. I was just the seventh highest Munro. And um, probably one of the most humiliating moments was when I was uh, climbing a Munro with my godson and his uh, dad, and I found out that he'd, he, was at the, he was actually three years old, and he climbed more Munros than me. He climbed five, and I'd done the three, so that was not a good moment. I've actually got a photo here. So this is Milan Tarmac, and this is opposite Ben Laws, which is the seventh highest, which is, so I used to live pretty much just a bit further back. That was pretty much the view out the window. And I uh, thought, okay, nice, uh, we can do this. It's, it's dry. Um, yeah, should be a nice little walk up and down. And this is me and my friend at the top. I, it looks like I was enjoying myself. 
I, re I really wasn't. That was not, not a fun moment. So that's probably the reason that I've only done four or five. The link is that Moses got into a bit of climbing in the desert. And we'll leave that there. We'll park that for a moment. Um, and because I, I'm sure there's some visitors here tonight, and I know we've had holidays, right? So a lot of you be, have been away in your jolly holidays and uh, coming back and school and term starts and things like that, uni on its way. Um, and I thought I'd just fill you in. So we're halfway through, or just actually over halfway through the series of Moses with a fifth Sunday out of eight, to be precise. And I'll just do a quick recap. So we've been looking at how Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt through the desert towards the promised land. And also what we can learn from that first here and now, how it helps us lead and actually how it helps us do life as well. So we've learned from Kay, if we kind of wind the clock back a few weeks, about how God prepared Moses in obscurity and in a hidden place and how he can do that with us too. We've learned from James about how God uses suffering and affliction um, for Moses to uh, create who he was and what he could do in the future. We learned from Faith about Moses moving into combative leadership when he confronted Pharaoh and the plagues and all of that happened at that time as well. And then last week, um, for those of you that are here, we, with Thomas, we looked at the worship time that took place after they'd been through the Red Sea, the waters had parted, they passed through, the Egyptians didn't, and that they actually stopped and they sang and they remembered and they looked back and then they hoped and they looked forward. And we've also done more than just learn about this stuff in our heads. We've been allowing God to mold our hearts and see what he might say to each of us individually and as a community, more than just a human talk could do. So let's pray that God will do much more than my mere human words, but that he might speak to us through his spirit. And without further ado, we're going to look at Exodus 19. So I've asked Naomi if she'd like to come and read this to us. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words, of the, the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. 
put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, may they go up to the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Thank you, Naomi. So just when Moses thought he'd seen it all with plagues, rivers parting, water out of rock, and other miracles as they travel through the desert. God takes things to another level. It's like another level, you know, because it was like a mountain. He went up a mountain. If I peak too soon, sorry. Have you got a problem with my range of jokes? Let's hope this doesn't plateau. Sorry, um, anyway. This was no laughing matter, right? So this was a place where God speaks, where God was present, where he outlines how the Israelites should live through the Ten Commandments and then a whole stack of more detailed laws. The tabernacle plans were laid out at that time. The clothes, the priests, the cloth that they were going to use, the dimensions, the rituals of how they would be consecrated. And if you want to find out all about that, um, straight after that, Exodus 20 to 31, uh, where it goes through it in more detail. And Moses was given this two tablets of stone um, of the testimony to take back down the mountain. This was a holy, holy, holy event. Moses took it deadly seriously. And the Israelites took it seriously, at least most of them. And we think it was a once up, once down affair. Actually, Moses went up seven times throughout the, the story, including a stay of 40 days and 40 nights at one point. He paid attention to what God was saying. He was willing to obey. And he and the Israelites, they consecrated themselves, as we heard there, before it all. No one apart from Moses could even touch the mountain um, without dying. They showed deep respect. And actually, it wasn't just the Hebrews at the time, but it was a common cultural belief that gods were at the top of mountains, that they were at the high places, as they like to, to call them. And actually, it's not the only time that mountains were referred to in the Bible. Elijah, he finds God's still small voice in the side of a cliff. David talks about climbing up the hill of the Lord in the Psalms. Jesus, he climbed mountains too, to pray, to meet with his heavenly Father. And Moses and Elijah, if you remember, they all joined together on a mountain once as well. Holy moments happen at the top of mountains. God speaks and communes with his people. Revelation is received. Perspective is widened. The everyday 
is put to one side. And if we flick right through towards the end of the Bible, the Apostle Paul, he says in Corinthians, he said it just like this. Just like Moses, whose face was so bright from encountering God's glory, he had to wear a veil. You and I here in this room, we also reflect God's glory, but without that veil. Actually, the message translation says it. So we are transfigured much like the Messiah, our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. What's Paul getting at here? That we can reflect God's glory more than Moses, who was up there for 40 days and 40 nights with the living God. What would it have been up to be up, up in that mountain with God for 40 days, 40 nights? Did it feel like 40 days? Did it feel like he'd just gone to Narnia and came back in a split second? Like, what was that about? What did it feel for his perspective to be totally shifted coming back down? Was he still able to do small talk with the Israelites when they were like, you know, hey Moses, how was the football last week? He's like, I've just been up a mountain with God. The short answer is, I have no idea. But we do know that, as we heard last week, Moses was a person of encounter who met with a living God. And whilst we might not be climbing Monroe's every week to receive God's new laws for our nation, mountaintop experiences are important for us too. To be people of encounter, for our lives to become brighter and more beautiful, to reflect God's glory. So let me ask you this, how often do you find yourself at the top of mountains? For me, many of my mountaintop moments have been at Christian summer festivals. Maybe some of you can relate to that. Um, if you've kind of grown up as a teenager and uh, going to things like Soul Survivor or Clan Gathering, um, many other different things, Keswick is closer to Scotland. Um, in fact, a lot of the youth from uh, Central have just gone up to Soul Survivor last night in Perth. And I saw this morning that they were meant to, they have a big tent that, um, that everyone meets in in the morning to worship and to hear God's word. And actually it was so windy this morning that they couldn't actually go in the tent because it was danger that it might actually take off. So they had to meet outside, um, which I thought would be quite fun. Um, but yeah, thousands of people gathering to worship God. You know, different churches, different backgrounds, different cultures, different preferences, but one priority, to meet together and meet with God. And for me, my, my first time I went to Soul Survivor down in Somerset, there was about 10,000 of us all in one, one big building. I was 16 years old. And we used to camp as well. So I remember it was me and a couple of mates who were a couple of years older than me and about twice the height. I was still this height and they were, yeah, a lot higher. And yeah, they were fairly sweaty um, men even then. And I remember none of us had a shower all week. And I got home and I, could, I had a shower and could feel and see the dirt dripping off. It was a beautiful experience. But I also remember in the worship times... Uh, in fact, one specific worship time, just as we were worshipping, it wasn't as someone explaining anything, but just having a really specific, fresh, clear understanding of what the cross was all about. About what Jesus had done for me, about me being made clean and set free. And it just totally fitted together and made sense in this whole new way, in a way that I, didn't, I hadn't understood before. And they had this big cross at the back of the stage, and I remember as the worship finished, I just couldn't take my eyes off that cross. I just didn't want to, to leave that place. 
And even to this day, that, that kind of understanding, I think, has stayed with me. And for me, that was a mountaintop experience. And then actually I ended up working for Soul Survivor. I, went, I was at uni here and then I went to work for them and travelled around the world going to uh, lots of different similar festivals in different countries. Um, you know, screaming teenagers and pumping music and amazing talks. But as you might expect, I, I kind of found that maybe my mountaintop experiences weren't always in those moments. That actually, times on my own, away from the noise and the busyness, that became my gold intentional conversations with people that I knew and loved and who knew and loved me, praying together, showing me more of who God is, more of his love, more of his holiness, understanding, taking on new things. And that shifted as, as time's gone on. And even a smaller level, there's, I found out recently there's someone here at Central who, in her house, she has signs all around the house saying, help me see as you see. Just these small little moments through her every day as she's got her kids for her to shift her perspective from how she sees, sees things to how God sees things. Because it's on the mountain where we remember our life is not about us. As we encounter his presence, we adopt his perspective. That decision about which job to take, or which course to take, doesn't seem such a big deal. Giving a bit more time to a lonely neighbour who no longer feels such a sacrifice. Choosing to pray for a few more minutes in the morning, it's, that's, it's no biggie. So what do your mountaintop experiences look like? Where you intentionally make time to encounter God. Are they loud? Are they quiet? Are they surrounded by others? Are you on your own? Do you plan them in? routine, or are you a bit more spontaneous about they happen? But how do you make sure that they're set apart for God? So there's Moses at the top of the mountain, but we all have to come down the mountain at some point. And what happens? We come into contact with the real world, with real people, real annoying people. And that's what happened to Moses. He came down from the mountains to the molehills. So first in Exodus 32, we won't kind of go through the passage, you can look at it later, but we find out that whilst Moses has been up the mountain, Aaron and the Israelites, they thought it'd be a good idea to throw all their jewelry into a big cauldron of some description and make a big gold cow idol to keep them happy. And then to have a massive slosh fest. Um, not in the kind of Wales Holy Spirit revival way, but just, I think, more the, the indulgent alcohol way. And both things were in stark contrast to what God had asked of them, what he'd requested. And they didn't know, I guess, whether Moses was coming back uh, or whether he ever would. They'd, they'd basically given up. So there was that time. And then there was this other bit, and this is in Numbers 11, which we'll go to, where their hunger got the better of them. And here's what they started grumbling. This is number, uh, Numbers 11. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also, the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Now, I can understand the desire for cucumbers, for your sandwiches, Maybe pims. Melon for your starter. It's a good solid starter, isn't it? Onions and garlic is a good foundational staple for any Mediterranean dish. Perhaps a curry. 
but leeks. Really? Leeks. Leek and potato soup? I wouldn't go back to slavery for that. But that's what they were about. They were, they were taking it too far. The Israelites were so desperate for these ingredients that they pined for the old world, for the, where they were slaves. Rather than find a way forward, backwards to what they knew sounded so much safer. Their perspective had completely gone. What would Moses have been thinking? You, you absolute morons. Why can't I go back up that mountain? Me and God, we're having such a great time up there, hanging out, sorting out the commandments, taking down measurements for the, you know, the new house, the priestly clothing. You just don't get it, do you? I have had higher revelation of which you know not. Anyone relate to that? Those moments where you kind of get it all sorted in your head and then you actually have to, to kind of work something out with a friend try and make something happen with a group of people. That thing of, actually, it's much better with me and God. But what might Moses have forgotten? How about that time, if we wind the clock back, when he wasn't quite Mr. Obedient, back at the beginning of the story, when he asked someone else to go and speak instead of him? Can't you find someone else, I think were his words? Or when he killed an Egyptian and ran away? Moses certainly hadn't been the perfect role model. And actually, the Israelites, they weren't all that bad. During Moses' first few visits up the mountain, they had said, we will do everything the Lord has said. They wanted to do the right thing. They wanted to know what God had said. But that doesn't mean that when we say it, we do it. Just because we want to follow God doesn't mean we do. I remember a time when I had quite an idealized version of, of how I wanted my life to work. I'd just moved, in fact, to the, the bottom of that mountain to this uh, training center up at Lochte, an amazing um, hotel, old hotel that had been bought out and renovated um, and kind of training leaders. And it was, I'd moved up from uh, near London to go and work and live there. And I had my own room. And it was this lovely room that had been done up as well. And as I think I'd just moved there and the, they'd brought in some, uh, changed some electrics around and had to replaster a wall. So all I had to do was a simple task of repainting about that much wall, about that high up. Pretty straightforward, right? They had the paint, didn't have to choose that. It was all just from the old stuff. So dust sheet on the ground, ladder, paint, brush, easy went up the ladder, painting away. Suddenly felt a slight wet sensation a bit further down my body, and it wasn't incontinence. <laughs> what had happened was I had actually kicked the paint bucket over at the top of the ladder, and it turns out when you do that, the dust sheet is not quite so effective because paint just goes everywhere. It went on antique furniture, on my keyboard, which was even worse, and on this um, wooden carving of a giraffe that I'd bought in South Africa, which I still have in, it's in, our, in our lounge at, at home, and it's kind of got this red paint at the bottom of it. it looks, it's quite a kind of, quite a yeah, haunting um, image, actually, of this kind of blood, bloody giraffe. Um, but anyway, it was a bit of a nightmare. What I'd wanted to happen in my mind's eye did definitely not happen. I had to explain it to my boss when he arrived back. But the lesson that I learned and no doubt Moses was learning, and that we have to learn is this. Life gets messy when people are involved. Life gets messy when you and I, not just people out there, when you, 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 me, when we're involved. In church speak, 
There's a guy called John Wimber. People know who John Wimber is? Yeah? A few, a few hands. He, he founded the Vineyard Movement in the States, and it's spread global, and it's had a massive impact on the church worldwide. And he said this. He said, it's messy in the nursery. It's neat and tidy in the graveyard. It's messy in the nursery. It's neat and tidy in the graveyard. Where there's new life, there is mess. And if church speak is not your thing, then how about, I'll give you some management speak uh, as well. There's a guy called Henry Mintzberg, there he's up on the screen. He's a world-renowned business and management expert, and he said, the managers are left with the messy stuff, the intractable problems, the complicated connections. And you might not call yourself a manager, you might not call yourself a leader, but if God's placed something on your heart for you to make a difference on this earth, then that's what you're doing. It might be helping the person across the street know love through a weekly meal. It might be to see a whole community in Edinburgh come to know Jesus. It might be to set up a successful business in media. It might be to be a good mum or a good dad. It might be for all the children in Scotland to grow up in loving families. It might be for the 27 million slaves across this world to find a way to freedom. Whatever it might be, if God's spoken to you and you step out into the world to see it come to pass, to see his kingdom come, it will get messy. I can guarantee that. I'd almost put money on it. Almost. And it's more and more common in the wider world that we live in too. I work help uh, in uh, helping develop business leaders day in, day out. That's my, my kind of day job. And one of the biggest themes that we're having to help people work through at the moment is a thing called dealing with ambiguity. And that sounds a very fancy kind of technical term, but it's really saying, what do I do when things are not clear, when it's not clear cut, when the answers aren't quite as cut and dry? I was actually in a boardroom last week playing back this, some of this message to a top team of a big company. Life is not as cut and dry as we maybe thought it was. People are having to do jobs and live life and build, king, build God's kingdom without all the answers, neat and tidy. In short, when it's messy. And that leaves us with this question, so what? You might be thinking, I get that it's not very easy to reconcile you know, our kind of holy moment, spiritual, uh, church, mountaintop, whatever experiences with the day job, with the real life, with the real world, with my family and my friends and my colleagues and those around me. But what do I actually do about that? How do I respond? And I want to finish just with a couple of ideas from Moses' life which might help us kind of go in that direction. Firstly, Moses, Moses, Moses? Moses, that sounds quite a cool name, but it's not his name. Um, Moses perseveres. In contrast to Aaron and the Israelites at the bottom of the mountain, who went for instant gratification with the idol and the drinking and the indulgence, Moses is playing the long game. He's playing the long game. They've lost hope. He's instilling hope. They've lost perspective. He's seen God's perspective. He knows where they're heading and he's determined to get there. He comes up against similar issues time and time again if you keep reading through the story, but he keeps on keeping on. And sometimes for us, that's what we've got to do, to keep on keeping on, one step forward at a time, holding on to the vision that God's placed within us, trusting in his promises, 
writing down what God said, remembering it, not letting go, telling others, and living our life like it's going to happen one day, somewhere. That's called faith. So where are you tempted to give in or give up? Where are you tempted to find a gold cow, an idol, some drinking that might make you happy for a short while? And where do you need to persevere in the dreams that God's got for you? Where do you need to persevere in the dreams that God's got for you? And at the same time, while we keep on keeping on one step after the other, we don't have to take it all on our own shoulders. We can partner with people in this adventure. That's the second point, that Moses partners. After the grumblings of the Israelites, Moses, this is in Numbers 11, following from where we we were talking about earlier, he says, I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. It was too much for him, and he finally realized it, and maybe just in time. What does God say? Does he just say, well, tough Moses, you know, you've come this far, just a little bit further. This is, what Mo- this is what God says, Numbers 11. Bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Make them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take some of the power of the Spirit that is on you and put it on them. They will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. God listens to him and lightens the load. He helps him, and actually on a very practical level. You need more people to give you a hand? Okay, let's do that. Bring them in. Let's share the load. We can persevere in community. We can persevere in community. God is not only there in the vision and the dream at the top of the mountain, God is with us at the bottom of the mountain with our allies and our conspirers and our partners that join us in that adventure. He's with us through this broken but mending, hurting but healing, messy church community that we are here today. So who are those people in your life? Do you have them? Who can you run shoulder to shoulder with? Who's after the same dreams as you? And how can you share the load? Where do you need to say, God, the burden is too heavy for me? And actually, it's worth saying, these two points we talked about, perseverance, partnership, actually, a couple of weeks ago in the morning, uh, Steve McLeister, one of our elders, was hitting home these same points, so I have done a bit of plagiarism. Why? Because I think they're worth hearing again. Perseverance and partnership. In the silver chair, silver chair, people heard of the silver chair? People read it? Yeah, a few. Second last in the series of Narnia. Jill arrived at the top of um, the mountaintop of Aslan's country before being, uh, he was about to blow her and Eustace into Narnia. And he'd given them some signs to help them navigate through Narnia to where they needed to get to. And here's what he said. I'm just going to read. This is straight from, from the book. Stand still. In a moment, I will blow. But first, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, 
Let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. And the signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. That is why it is so important to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. I'll just read a little bit of that again. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. So how do we cope when the air thickens? How do we keep on ushering in the kingdom of God, seeing his dreams brought to bear? God, would you keep our minds clear in it all? And I know I've spoken a lot uh, this evening about mountains, but you know the truth? The truth is we don't need to go up mountains anymore. We don't need to climb Munro's. You can if you want, but we don't need to because God can meet with us right here, right now. God's placed his Holy Spirit inside of us for us to be carriers of his presence that we might bring that to a broken and hurting world. And that's why we can do what we can do now and respond and meet with him. So why don't we stand and let's invite the Holy Spirit to come and fill us. Holy Spirit, we invite you now. We say, as we said earlier, we want to say it again. You've been here all along, but we want to invite you in a fresh way to come and move amongst us, Lord. Come and fill us afresh from head to toe. For some of us, what's in our heads, would you make us know it in our hearts? We invite you now. Come, Lord. Why don't you just, if you feel you'd like to, close your eyes, maybe put your hands out. Just say, Lord, I welcome you. We say more of you, Lord. More of your presence. More of you, Lord. And I wonder if for some of us there's that, that sense, that, that echoing and resonating with what Moses said, this, this burden, this feels too heavy for me to bear. And for one or two of you, whether you're feeling that tonight of, I've got dreams, I've got things I want to get after, but it feels heavy. And God's saying, okay, let's lighten the load. 
Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Let me take that from you. Let's share it out. And Lord, for those of us who are in that place, would you come and lighten our load? And maybe as well, for some of you, you're thinking, actually, all this chat about mountains, I don't know if I've ever been up, had a mountaintop experience. I don't know if I've ever really met with God in that way. And maybe for some of you, there's that, him ushering you, calling you up, saying, come up the mountain, come and meet with me, come and hear me speak into your life, come and hear the dreams that I have for you. Come up the mountain, come up the mountain.